All right, my lovers, we are in the fire temple. We have our fire. We are gathered. We are gathered here today. So for thousands and thousands of years, human beings have gathered together around fires to tell stories of where we've come from, where we're going, and what this strange, bittersweet, amazing experience of life is. So I thought it was appropriate that we could gather here today around this fire. And I can share with you a new story about where we've come from and what this is. A story which brings together some very ancient ideas from spirituality, and some brand new ideas from science into one great narrative. And our place our story starts is 13.8 billion years ago with this event that gets called these days the Big Bang, which is actually a joke name because it wasn't big, it was very, very small, and there was no bang. <laughs> because there were no ears and no sound waves. I said that to a friend of mine who's an amazing poet, and he said, yes, we should call it the tiny silence. 13.8 <laughs> years, billion years ago, it started with the tiny silence. Actually, maybe it didn't start. Maybe our universe actually is not the first universe. Many physicists think that, and my own gut intuition is that. I would be astonished, what do I know, but I would be astonished if this was the first universe. And I suspect our universe is repeating what universes have done before, just like my body is repeating what human bodies have done before. And that there has always been the past and the possible. There's always been that. But for the purposes of our story, let's imagine a beginning. And let's imagine that was certainly the beginning for our universe, the story that we're in. And you can puzzle about, well, what, where did the universe come from and why? And I'm a great believer in a process in philosophy which gets called Occam's razor, after a man called Occam, who said basically, let, if you could avoid an idea, avoid it. Just keep to the very minimum of things you need to explain something. And most of the problems with our older stories is that they explain this miracle with an even bigger miracle. So if you take a, a great being and put them at the front, whatever you call it, God is at the beginning, and God creates it or intends it or imagines it, you've explained one miracle with an even bigger miracle. So let's not do that with our story. Let's say something which it feels like is unavoidably true. Let's say the absolute minimum. And the absolute minimum, I think, is to say wherever the universe came from, it was the potential for the universe. 
So maybe we can say that wherever this flow of form and of time has arisen from, is itself formless, timeless, and is not made of anything. It has no qualities. But it is the potentiality for every quality that will emerge from it. And what happened with the tiny silence is that this potentiality realized itself. Why? Well, who knows? Maybe because it was repeating what other universes had done before. Or maybe we can say it's absolutely in the nature of potentiality to realize itself. That it couldn't be potentiality unless it did. But something happened that started off this. And it seems to me the way it started, we can understand with some very ancient ideas, as well as with these modern ideas from physics. And some of the ideas that come back to me were written down 2,500 years ago or more in China, in the Taoist tradition, in a book that was my very first book I wrote, actually, on the Tao Te Ching. And there's an amazing account of where this comes from, which I think still speaks to us all this time later. There's a great mythical insight where this voice of Lao Tzu, whoever he was, if he was, somebody, says this, the Tao, from the Tao arises the one, and from the one comes the two, and from the two comes the three, and from the three comes the 10,000 things, meaning everything. So I just want to play with that in our new story, because it seems to me that it's very similar to what I want to explore, actually, which is from something, sorry, from nothing comes something. From the mystery, the, the Tao, the potentiality, comes something. And in that movement, you now have two. And you could symbolize them, if you wanted, with a zero for nothing and a one for something, which is the way that we symbolize those things. And what's fascinating about the world we live in now is that we have learned that if you take a zero and a one, representing a fundamental polarity, which the Chinese called yin and yang, you have a binary code. And actually, with a binary code, you can create everything. So that we now can represent everything we see, everything we hear, all these processes better and better and better in binary code. So it's a beautiful metaphor for what's actually happening in this great creation myth. There is nothing and something, and then you have two. And from that possibility of this or that, which is what computers are doing, you're going to go this way or that way, and now this way or that way. And, this, and if you do that enough, you get all the qualities. So the first thing I think that's arising from that zero and one, the two-ness, the yin and the yang, which are both expressions of the one, which itself is a manifestation of the mystery is the relationship between those two. And that's the three, the relationship. And that relationship is so infinite, it will give rise to everything. And that's why I've 
suggested that the first thing that's arising is actually before time. It's the nature of archetypal relationship. It's what we would call now information. And it's something which we study with mathematics. It's not mathematics, but it's what we study with mathematics and what we study with geometry. And nothing in mathematics exists in the world. There are no ones in the world. There's a one apple, but there's no one. There's no circles in the world. There's things which are almost a circle, but there's no perfect circles or triangles or any of that. They're all abstract, but they're the relationship between these abstract things. This was a great insight in the West at exactly the same time that Lao Tzu was writing of Pythagoras, who's the Buddha of the West, who's, who was the generator of the idea which has come to fruition in our own lifetimes, that mathematics is a way to understand everything. And one of his great insights was, you know, look, music is maths. You would study the lengths of strings and see that it was relationships. Everything was these relationships. And what we've discovered with science is that that is the greatest tool possible with which to understand the complexity of life. Why? Because I think the, most, the first thing that, which is emergent is these abstract relationships, timeless relationships. And this is what Plato was pointing to as a Pythagorean with the idea of a realm of forms. It's a different way of seeing it. He had no idea of evolution. He didn't see it in that way. But I think it's resonant with what they were seeing all that time ago in the West and the East. And what I love about looking at number, just the simple one, two. Oh, now you have three. And oh, then that implies four, which implies five, and six, and is you have the archetype of time. You have the archetype of one thing following another. And what comes from that is time. And once you have the, the archetypes of geometry, you have the archetype of space, which is that in the dimensions we experience here. So from, from that information, that information will become everything. And the beautiful, you know, we can understand that today through the metaphor of the way in which we can create virtual realities. I'm not saying this is a virtual reality. I'm saying whatever we discover as human beings mirrors back to us what this is we're in, in a new way. So it starts a process of unfolding. And what happens is that the, it starts with the simplest of things. On the quantum level, you can actually see new possibilities coming into and out of existence. You don't even know whether it's a wave or a particle. It's not fixed. It's fluid. But by the time it reaches a higher level of, of information, matter, it starts to become fixed. And you see the beginning of what will be the material universe. You will see the arising of hydrogen and helium and the, the fundamental forms that will create these enormous stars, which will then create more forms, all of which are in us now. They're still there. So the fundamental idea behind this cosmology, this story which I'm sharing with you, is that what this is, what existence is, is the realization of potentiality. That's what it is. That's what it is when it started. That's what it still is right now. But it's in the nature of time 
that the past accumulates, that the information, as it becomes richer, everything that has come into form, everything that has had a form, is formed forever. So that the flow of the time stream is becoming richer and richer and richer, which means there's a tendency towards the emergent of new things, that process of evolution, which builds on what's happened before. So that every moment in the past is just like every moment for us now. Every moment contains within it everything that has happened before. It is arising from everything that's happened, and it's realizing a new potential that has never happened, ever. And that is always the case. And that's what's been happening for these 13.8 billion years. And each new moment has realized a new potential, and at some points, a dramatically new potential. Novelty, new things. Now, there was once no water. There was once no water. And then at a certain point in this story, hydrogen and oxygen got it on. And, then, and we had water for the first time. And just think about that. Two gases come together, and we have something we experience as a liquid. How extraordinary is that? How extraordinary is that? But that's what's happened. There is a creativity to this potentiality. Alfred North Whitehead invented the word creativity, which we use all the time now. He invented it to describe what I call the potentiality the formless, timeless present that is always here, within which everything is happening. Because it's creative. It takes what exists, and it makes it new. It takes what exists, and it makes it new. And it's happening now. I'm doing it. It's within me. This, these words are new. It's always new. So it seems to me that what has happened since the tiny silence is that we've had this enormous process of emergence which has taken us from very, very simple matter to in, in the complex, complex galaxies. A hundred billion galaxies full of a hundred billion stars have arisen. As the universe has expanded, which, by the way, with one of my favorite facts, which means that the center of the universe is everywhere. And that's not some nice mystical thought. It's actually true, because it's expanded from one center, which means that that center from which it's expanding from is where you are. You are literally the center of the universe, but so am I. So is everywhere. That's the nature of the thing we're in. And it's been through this 10 billion years of the evolution of physicality, and then at some point, at least on our little planet, in this backwater of our solar system, something absolutely magic happens, and you see the evolution of life for the first time. A whole new thing. And then from life, that will develop into complex forms. Um, for the very first time, cells will come together and form multicellular organisms. They will not just individuate, they'll unividuate. And this is the process that's been happening the whole time. It starts with everything very similar, but each thing becomes, oh, we've now got all of the different chemical elements, and they're different, and they relate differently with each other. So right from the start, you've got individuation, and then a jump where they individuate into something greater. Oxygen and hydrogen individuate into H2O, water. 
It's a different thing, but it has its own integrity, which contains, transcends, and includes what's there before. And through this process, what you also have is the evolution of both objectivity and subjectivity. And what are those two? They're very simple, I think. Once you have, once the time stream has individuated into a hydrogen atom, it is now in relationship to the whole. And that relationship of the part to the whole is subjectivity. You're experiencing it right now. You're a part in relationship to the whole, and that's your subjectivity. And that's true of the simplest of things, except that subjectivity is electrochemical subjectivity. By the time it becomes life, these plants, it's now reacting to the light. That's its subjectivity, and to the water, and to the minerals. That's its subjectivity. When it becomes the rabbits that we've seen, now they're looking and smelling, and that's their subjectivity. And then from that is going to arise this experience we're having of psyche or soul, images, something completely new, a whole new dimension of existence. So the great sweep of things, matter, life, soul. Science has been very good at describing matter and life, hasn't done so well with soul. Spirituality, very good at soul. The story which can unite human wisdom into one thing is the story which goes this last period of evolution is not some irrelevant byproduct of, a, of just biology. It's actually a whole domain of existence which has arisen. Just as a whole ecology of life has arisen on the basis of the complexity of matter, an ecology of soul has arisen, which has its own existence. And that's what spirituality has been saying for thousands of years. So, looked at this way, the evolutionary process has gone from simple matter to something which is not made of matter, which you're experiencing right now. It's gone from something which is causal to something which is full of meaning. It's gone, gone from something which is, you, can, you can measure relatively easily to something which is, you can't, which is actually like a dream, which we're in right now. So that we find ourselves, at the end of that process, in all of that at once. I'm experiencing, there's the primal fire, <laughs> there's matter, here's biology, and then here, where we're talking, where we're sharing these ideas, we're experiencing something which is beyond matter. It doesn't exist in this fire temple. The place where our bodies are meeting in the fire temple, but our souls, our minds, our imaginations, where are they meeting? It's completely non-local. It's somewhere else altogether. It's, an, it's another dimension altogether. So let's look at what's arisen with that dimension. So with the arising of matter, you get all the chemical elements, and da-da-da, and the stars, and the da da and then with the arriving of biology, you get looking and listening, and you get uh, eating and dying, and all sorts of new things which never existed before. Well, it seems to me that that process didn't end. That process continued. And when it arrived on this whole new level of psyche, wow, the novelty has just exploded. You get a whole load of things which have never existed before. Suddenly, there they are. Uh, humor, 
never existed before. Tragedy never existed before. Stories never existed before. Meaning never existed before. It, it, the, the list is endless. Just go through it. You know, imagination, memory, everything. Just like, whoa, there's the, the world we inhabit mostly came into existence with that, because that's where we exist mostly. But the one I want to focus on tonight, because I think it's very central to spirituality, is I want to suggest to you that what arose with the evolution of soul was also immortality. Now the first thing to get is that what arose with the beginning of life was also death. So there's no death before you have life. They arrive together. So is it possible that as spirituality has taught since shamanic times that actually with the arising of the soul something transcends death? Why? Because it's not made of matter. It's not bio biological. It is, it is in relationship to biology but fundamentally, the, es the essential idea in spirituality is that you are now a soul. You are this non-material thing in relation to a body. Can we take that seriously today? Has it got to be thrown away? I don't think it needs to be thrown away. I think it can be taken seriously. And the key is to go right back to the beginning and go, this is information. This is information. That's where it started. Now, I am an emergentist, not a reductionist. So please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying this is really information. I am not saying this is really noughts and zeros. I'm saying this is really information which has emerged onto these other levels and turned it, until it's turned into really life and really soul. And it cannot be reduced to where it started. But nevertheless, that is where it started. And so we can understand that what's happening is that, is that information is arising on all these different levels. And you can see that with your body. George and I have known each other for 15 years. When I first met him, he was a completely different person, <laughs> literally, in this terms of his body. I am, there was not a single atom in George's body which was there when I met him. In what way is this still George? And yet it is. Let alone his soul, but just his body. Completely different. So when we meet now, we're to completely different, literally completely different physicalities. And that's because we're not, the, the body is not what it, the physicality. The body is information through which physicality passes. Which is why you take it in every day and get rid of it, and take it in and get rid of it. <laughs> and through doing that, you maintain, because the body is information on the biological level. That's what it is. So it's definitely the same body. It just happens to be not the same atoms. So if you can get that, then we can look at the soul. So what's happened is we've evolved onto a non-material level of information. That's where we've ended up. That seems to be obvious from our actual experience. So is it possible that that can exist in its own right? So for the purposes of our story, because my god, there's so much we could say about this and so many deep questions we could ask. For the purposes of this story, I want to give you a metaphor, which I hope is enough to point towards what we, a way of seeing this that could be helpful. And that's to return to the computer analogy which we started off with. Because what struck me when I was thinking about this was I was writing my book, Soul Story, 
on my computer. And there was months and months and months of work on my computer. But were I to spill my coffee on my computer, all of that would be lost. Except it wouldn't, of course. Because that information, which was on my computer, was simultaneously on the cloud. It was simultaneously non-local. It was locally in that hardware, but it was simultaneously everywhere. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor. But just play with it for me, with me. Because I think that actually fits what I'm experiencing, which is that I exist both here and in the cloud, in a non-local space. That's where I exist. So the question around life after death, I think, could be framed like this. Once you go, oh, OK, so that's possible. The question which comes next, I think, is, well, doesn't the, doesn't the body support that? Well, we've explored already that everything is one thing unfolding in these individuated ways. What is supporting it is not the body. What is supporting that information on the level of soul is the whole universe. What is supporting you as a soul is not just your body. It's the history of everything which is supporting you. So that it is able to exist because it is supported by the whole existence, I suggest. So let me frame the question for us about life and death so that we can see where we've come from and where we're going. The question I think is this, hey, when this experience we're having of being a body stops, then this body dies and I can't look anymore and I can't listen anymore and I can't touch anymore because that's my body doing that. Does this experience of imagination stop or not? Does the dream end when the senses end? Or does that continue? And what I find fascinating, just because I love people's stories, is that throughout history, people have said they have experienced that it goes on. And because of science, because of medical science, we now, today, have literally hundreds of thousands of accounts of people who have medically died and, say, and come back to say, no, no, it definitely goes on. In fact, it becomes much richer than you can possibly imagine. So I want us in this new story to be able to entertain very seriously the possibility that life is not only meaningful, but that it, is, it, that it continues. And that that is a large part of its meaning. And here's why I think it's ended up that way. With the evolution of Life came the evolution of death. And you know what? Then natural selection and all that stuff, Darwin stuff and all that, whatever version of it you think works. Death is absolutely essential to the biological evolution. It's a fantastic way to evolve species. It's brilliant. What got us so quickly from one single cell to all of this, for heaven's sake, is death. Because you can, something arises, and it gives birth to something new, and then you get rid of the old one. 
and they're new and they get rid of the old one. And new and get rid of the old one. So if you want powerful, strong variety of species, death is your way. And the evolutionary process has thrown up that and it's worked spectacularly. And what's happened is that all of these different species have individuated until we're, look at us, we're surrounded by individual species of life, including ourselves. But I suggest with the evolution of soul, the agenda changes. It is no longer about the evolution of species. It's now about the evolution of individuals. The process of individuation, which started all that time ago with the Big Bang, has now reached such a degree of sophistication. It's about the in individual, it's about the evolution of individual species, uh, individuals. Now, death is fantastic for evolving species, but death is catastrophic for evolving individuals. Which is why we have a, a, an essential pain at the idea that death could just be that you're with your lover, your friend, your parent, your child, and you see that in precious individuality that you look at that and go, and, that is a, and that's nothing. And there's something in us which just goes, no, and I think that's wisdom that goes, no. Because actually it is precious. It's what the whole thing has been le leading to. So here's a suggestion which ties together ancient ideas with modern ones. Before there was biology, there was no natural selection. In whatever form you think that happens. Some form of natural selection is what has made biology work. That didn't exist when they were forming chemicals. There was no DNA. There was no competition between different... None of that. That arose with... That was a, a new mechanism for evolution arose with biology. I want to suggest a new mechanism for evolution has also arisen with soul. And that mechanism is what Pythagoras called metempsychosis, which most people today call reincarnation. And that what the ancients knew, because they were in it just as we are and paid it a lot of attention, was that this experience we're having of the soul is in a symbiotic relationship with a different form of information, which is biological. And that we come and we go. And that what you hear described in the, the near-death experience is the same thing that you will have find described through all the spiritual literature, which is there is a world of images, there is a great dream, and we're in it right now. And that when we die, we go deeply into the great dream. And it has more levels than you can imagine. And it itself has evolved. It has become richer and richer and richer. Until today, people's experiences are incredibly various and rich. We exist in it now, and we go deeper into it when the body dies. But we can't stay in it. The soul needs the support. It's a bit like a jump. It's a bit like, I can jump in the air, and I can have no ground beneath my feet to support me. I can exist without the ground for a bit. And depending how strong my legs are and how much I can throw myself in the air, I can stay there with no ground to support me for longer. But I will come down and connect with the ground. And I think by this metaphor, that's what's happening with souls. Souls are able to, a bit like stars. You know, when you look at the stars, what you're seeing is light. And the star may be long gone, 
may have been dead for millions of years, but what you're seeing is the light from it. And in the same way, the soul is able to catapult into the dreaming, into the, what I call the imaginos, and exist there for a while before it comes back and, in, and goes through this process again to individuate further. Why? Let's end our story with why. Where's it all going? Where does that leave us? Well, we've said that everything is created by the past. Everything is made of time. So each one of us, each one of us as a soul stream, is made of everything we've ever experienced. And that, in this metaphor of my jump metaphor, which was fun, that is what is that strength is what can enable us to reach up into the more emergent level of soul. And the more higher we can move, the longer we can stay. So what's happening, I think, is that we are forming ourselves through our experience to become more emergent souls, more awake souls, able to go deeper than before. And one of the things which I find deeply moving is that since ancient times and very much today, you hear this description in the near-death state or the death state of, of, of coming across what in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is beautifully called the luminosity of potentiality. It's the potential. It's that great potentiality from which everything has arisen. And the ancient idea was that's what's real, that's what you really are. Just dissolve yourself into it like a, a drop into the ocean when you die. Which sounds great until you stop and think about it. And then if you stop and think about it, what it means is your whole life, all your struggles, 13.8 billion years of evolution are a complete waste of fucking time. <laughs> it's of no, no account, much better if it never happened. Just go back to the emptiness, back to the void. It's of no account. I do not believe that's true. I, need to, I think we need to revise that story. I think it's the opposite of that. There was a lady who told me her near-death experience many years ago, which made a big impression. It was when I was working on these ideas. And she said, what I experienced was watching these sparks rising up into the light and falling away from the light. It's a very ancient image. You find it in the Hermetica, the ancient Egyptian texts, the same image. And using that image, I want to suggest to you that that light in this image is made of all those sparks. That we are filaments in the light. We haven't fallen from the light. We are creating the light. And that what happens in the death state is we get the chance to enter that enormous oneness and love which we touch here in that love light. And we can stay in it, not by dissolving into it, but the opposite, by staying conscious in it. And that means maintaining our individuality in the, under the impact of that enormous oneness without going unconscious. And that's a hard thing to do, as you'll know from just meditating. It's hard. And that needs a strength of soul. That needs a level of individuality which can come into it and be in it. And that's where the story for me ends 
starts with something which is very Taoist, but it ends with something which is very Christian in a way, or there's many other traditions which are similar. Because it feels to me that what we're giving birth to through this process is a being of love, something which transcends us, in which each one of our souls is an element. And so that just like all of these cells have come together in my body to form a communion of cells, which is much bigger than every single cell. So we are coming into a communion of souls to form something which transcends us. And just as my, the cells in my finger have no idea what it's like to be Tim. I mean, just they're so far away from it. It's like they, know, they might know what it's like to go, ouch, or mm, <laughs> but they have no idea what it's like to do philosophy. <laughs> and in the same way, I don't think Tim has a foggy clue what it would be like actually to be this transcendent being, god or goddess. But I know what it's like to commune in it, because I've done that with you. And what it's like to commune in it is this amazing love. And as we come into it, it feels like this is where we belong. This is the most emergent thing. So this story then is a story which goes from unconscious oneness, unconscious because it's on everything, through individuation into increasing sophistication and individuating and individuating into greater consciousness until you have soul, until you have consciousness through soul that actually we're one with the whole thing. And then that potentiality from which it all starts knows itself through the form. And when that happens, it is love, because love is how the oneness feels for us. So that the universe is growing into God. Just like you grew in from a single cell, grew into you. So the universe is flowering or growing into this. It's the, the most emergent things come last. And that is the most emergent thing. It starts with the simplest, it moves to love. And within that story, my friends, I feel we have as much meaning as our ancestors could have hoped for. Because we are the vehicle through which God is realizing itself. The universe is realizing itself. And we are not separate from that. We are absolutely expressions of that. And by making our own journey, which is precious, and by making, forming our own souls, we get the chance to also be part of this huge, huge, ancient, vast story. And we get to see that our lives here matter, and that they don't end with the death of the body. Because fundamentally, we are no longer the body. The body has given birth to something more than itself. And that is what we are now. And what that does for me, and I'll leave you with this thought, is it redeems the process. Why is the world so crazy? Why is, why is life so bitter? Why can nature be so cruel? Not because there's some mad god at the beginning who's vindictive, well, because the universe doesn't care at that level. Because it is, called, it is chance at that level but it has emerged into us, and we can look back at it, and from a place of compassion, 
we can go, ah, like, like, like we do with our own lives, when you can look back on all of that suffering and go, but it led to this. If it leads to a greater good, everything is redeemable. If it leads to a greater good, everything is redeemable. And for me, from the very first experience of waking up when I was 12 years old, all the way through all the experiences I've had with so many of you, what I find in that state is this profound goodness, this, this naivety that goes, life is good, despite everything, life is good, and death is safe. And what really matters is this love. So the whole of this story, I think, ends there that this is good, that this thing we're in, that the journey is safe, ultimately, even though it's hairy, and that what really matters is that we connect as souls and bring that love into the world together. And that's my story.